Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the mic for thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. In this episode, Thomas Bade Matheson, Vice President of Altanova, discusses where sustainability fails. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us here for the Workplace Conversation at the Innovation Pavilion. Uh, my name is Michael Horton. I'm with Callison RTKL. Uh, and we are pleased to be able to host this, uh, today our, our guest speaker and honored to welcome Mr. Thomas Baden Matheson, Vice President of Corporate Services for Altanova. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. So, the big point of today is where sustainability fails. And over the next 20 minutes, we're going to be exploring some concerns about that and what we can do about it. It's going to be a session that works well for people that are new to the topic, but it should also be a solid um, provocation and at least uh, raise some thoughts with also people that have been spending the last 10 years on sustainability. So, before we start, can anyone tell me what this is? It's a fence. What happened to it? It melted. So. In fact, so I wasn't as quick as you were, but last uh, Saturday, I was driving to the beach with some friends. I was visiting California, and this kind of site was new to me. I didn't see exactly this, but I did see a melted sign, I mean a melted fence, and it really struck me as uh, a reminder of what had just gone down here uh, a year before. And, uh, you know, the point, I really want to make here isn't that forest fires are necessarily unnatural, uh, but as we know, they are increasing in frequency, which leads us to an opening point of today's talk, which is acceleration. We have, you know, we all know why climate change is happening. Climate change is happening because of the increase of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. Uh, it, and we know that they're man-made. And we're also seeing an acceleration in the response to this man-made climate change. Now, this is from uh, March that happened just one month ago. Uh, it was a global march. Uh, we saw 4 million people worldwide in over 150 countries hit the streets to protest for climate action. And that's just one way of responding. What I find very interesting that we're also seeing accelerate now is that people are responding in the decisions they are doing when they buy, okay? So, of course, when you talk about buying decisions, you think about consumers. And maybe some of you know, for example, 1% of the planet, uh, it shows up as a label on bottles on, on jackets. It was created by Patagonia's founder and has already got 2,000 brands under it. The point I want to make is that consumers we're seeing are now making choices that are discriminated by how sustainable a brand is and, and the companies are, are following suit. Another way that you can make a buying decision is if you're an investor. Are you going to buy into a company? This is a tremendous long list of, uh, of uh, funds. Uh, there are 300 and over 350 of 
the world's largest funds uh, that gathered around a group called the CA100 or Climate Action 100. And what is very interesting about this, apart from that they managed 300, I mean 35 trillion dollars, 35 trillion dollars, which I struggle with wrapping my head around, is that they signed up around this commitment to align their investment principles with the Paris Accord, okay, the Paris Agreement, to limit our emissions to well below two degrees, uh, I mean our temperature rise to well below two degrees, if not closer to one and a half. So we've got the consumers making buying decisions, we've got the investors making buying decisions, and then we've got these new guys that are coming, that are making decisions on which company they want to buy in with their own time as employees. You heard the keynote speaker talk yesterday about Gen Z coming on the way. And these guys are more than ever, they're the most purpose-driven a group of employees we have ever seen, and soon they're going to be all over our workforce. So the leases that we are signing now and the campuses we're designing and building are going to be housing these guys. Have we considered that? What is the purpose that is embedded in our buildings over the next 10 years? And as we, if we zoom in on that climate march, you know, a lot of the guys that are out in the streets are the young ones, the young voices. So we've just talked about three types of buying decisions that have led this group at the top, the C-suite, to act. And I just picked one headline, but there are a lot of initiatives going on right now that are showing CEOs spending more and more of their time on sustainability. Um, and for example, this was just two months ago. We had Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan. We had Mary Barra from GM. We had all of these CEOs from the largest companies sign up that now they're not only about creating shareholder value anymore, it's about all the other stakeholders too. So, what about corporate real estate? What about corporate real estate? I want to ask you guys a question. How many percent of the world's emissions come from operating real estate? Not building it, not the embedded CO2 in the structures. How much? 40? 65? Any other? All right. Someone is pretty smart here in the back, or very lucky. It is 40. Uh, that's exactly right. But, but think about that for a moment, because when we talk sustainability, maybe many of you are not surprised about that number, but when you go out and talk about sustainability, real estate isn't the first thing that comes up. But my goodness, is that a lot of responsibility. Now, who are the largest users of real estate in the world? I'm going to simplify and say us. Cornet is the largest organization of the largest users of real estate in the world. So we are <laughs> the largest guys, con the largest group controlling those 40% of emissions. I'm, it's a bit of a provocation, but you get where I'm going with this. So, so far, we've looked at the climate is changing and buying patterns are changing and the sea suit is changing. And guess what? Corporate real estate is behind the driving wheel, okay? Not everybody realized that. And some do and play ostrich tactic and put their head down in the dirt. Uh, some are all on it, but we're seeing all colors of engagement right now going on. And there's still a long way to go before we mature this topic in corporate real estate executives' minds. 
Okay, I'm gonna go one step closer to home. I live in New York City. Um, I was going to quiz you, but the number is already there. So, <laughs> so how many percent do you think of New York's emissions are, uh, are, are stemming simply from operating real estate? Well, I, I can quiz you on another. How many percent of New York's uh, square feet of real estate do you think are commercial real estate? It's about 60. So 60% 60 of that is, again, corporate real estate. So, you know, that is a lot of emissions in our hands. And last year, my team and I walked through a series of normal high-end offices in Manhattan, and here's what we found. So there's a lot of information here, uh, and that's kind of the point. We don't need to go through all of it right now. Uh, but this is just a general walkthrough assessment of Four offices, they're about 65,000 square feet, so not exactly your main campus, but definitely uh, a solid satellite office, uh, and definitely a lot of investment when you consider the, the costs of developing in Manhattan. So what we found is that all of these, and really they're pretty representative of the walkthroughs that we do, we found that 35%, 45% of, of you know, their energy consumption uh, I mean, of their savings uh, were just still left on the table. Uh, and we saw that payback periods ranged from, you know, one to under four years. Very commonly, we see that if, if you try and grab some of the energy savings that are left on the table, they cost less than three years to pay back. Uh, we see a bunch of CO2 emissions. And we also gathered some information on the indoor environments. And we saw that humidity ranged from 17 to 45 percent in one place, 10 to 28, very dry in another place, 45 to 75 in a third place. Also, the temperatures are all over the place. And so the indoor environments are clearly a little bit out of whack unless uh, the populations of these offices have very different preferences to what they think is comfortable. So that just leads me to ask, because this is, you know, this is just very representative of what we're finding uh, in offices after they've been meticulously selected. They've gone through design processes, construction, and now they're operating. Can't we get them a little more efficient? Can't they be a little more comfortable? Some of them have even gone through certification processes, and they still show a lot of improvements, uh, improvement potential. And I ask myself, why? Okay. So, you know, I think that is a bit of a failure. I think we are failing and we're leaving a lot of value on the table. But it really goes down to that question of why. And I think the answer is about value. You know, uh, if, if someone asked you to watch their wallet while it was sitting on uh, a sidewalk table, would you watch it carefully? Probably, because it's quite valuable. If someone asked, can you watch my magazine, you probably wouldn't look at it as carefully. It's the same with anything that is valuable. You're going to pay more attention to it if it is valuable. But sustainability is just so immense of a topic that it is terribly difficult to tie value to. I mean, some of the things that are most important in life are simply the ones that are hardest to put a value on, right? So what is the value of sustainability? That's what we're going to spend uh, the rest of our time on. And I think that this is a big problem when we talk about that topic, return on investment. 
it's an important indicator, but it's not necessarily a measure of the aggregate value that you have left. Um, so, you know, on one side, you can say that I'm going to invest my people, my time, and my money, but what am I going to get in return? Uh, this constantly is a key weapon when you are trying to attack sustainability and scrutinize it to see if it holds water. I want to bring up an interesting statistic. From in 1975, 17% of the market cap of the S&P 500 was considered intangible. In 2015, it's actually 84%. 84% of the market cap of S&P 500 is intangible value. So, why should it, you know, when we talk about value for sustainability, why should it be any different than when we're evaluating companies? If companies are, you know, 84% of a company is intangible value, then what about sustainability? Can't we also put numbers on the intangible value of uh, sustainability? So I want to walk you through a very quick framework here. It's super simple and, uh, you know, come up to me if you want afterwards or just note it down. But it's really about costs, risks, revenues, and intangibilities. What I want to walk you through is when we talk about sustainability, it's about either reducing the downside or increasing the upside. And historically, we've found that, uh, so you've got upside, downside, you've got more certain, less certain. And historically, when we've talked about sustainability, we've talked first about costs and cost reduction. Maybe afterwards we're talking about risk and risk reduction. If we're getting advanced as we mature our journey, you're going to start to see that we start talking about revenue. And last but not least is this massive intangible value. So what, why does this matter? Well, let's go to some examples. Energy and water efficiency are fitting into the, you know, the bucket that you typically address first, together with, for example, utilization, reducing the size of your portfolio reduces your cost, but it also reduces your, uh, your uh, environmental footprint. Um, if we talk about risks, there are supply chain risks. If we have industrial real estate or if an office gets hit by a storm, what's the cost of closing it down for some days? Um, or simply bad PR, your company didn't perform as well as it's communicating uh, when it comes to sustainability and your new office sucks. Uh, what's the cost of that? You know? So you want to reduce those. On the revenue side, there's a lot of value to capture. What, what about having a healthy office and keeping your, your team productive or simply your facilities productive? Um, are you going to get more market share if you are more productive, what's the value of that? And maybe you can even, with higher quality staff and, uh, and uh, operations, uh, achieve a higher price on some of your products. We've seen this again and again, and it's a little bit high level, but this is the strategic view that a C-suite will look at when they think about their company. And we're just bringing it down to sustainability. On the intangible, we talk a lot about experience this week at Cornet. Uh, customer loyalty, uh, you know, a bank with its branches has lead on its doors. Does that mean anything for customer loyalty as an example? Talent, attraction and retention, what is actually the value of that? This is a way of dividing costs into four quadrants. And in the, in the end, it's about spending less. It's about having more reliable 
finances. It's about making more money and it's also about securing your future income. So what I wanted to point out here is that there are other things that go on the other side where we just had a question mark. It just requires effort. You can apply this to your site selection. You can apply it to your design and construction. You can apply it to your operation. This is a simplification. Real estate is about a lot more than this. But my point is you can go back and take that framework and, and you can then go and apply it to anything that you're working on. And maybe you're going to see that where you had put a zero before, there's actually some value. So this is a little uh, simple. I just put it together out of common sense. But this is the process that my team usually approaches with a client in most situations when it comes to sustainability. A lot of people focus on lead and the tools before they even know where they want to go and what value they want to capture. So I would always encourage you, always ask, what's your vision? Does it exist or did you maybe not articulate it yet? Go through the exercise. Doesn't have to be perfect, but have an idea. What are the goals that back that vision? What are they? And where do you stand? That's, those three steps alone are just so valuable. But then we come to this point of like, oh, are we going to do anything with it? Is it valuable or not? So what value would you put on that gap that you can, that you can actually uh, cross to catch those goals and achieve them, you know? And the other question is, how much are you willing to invest to, to do so? The problem today is that very often we, we skip all of this and we just say, oh, we're going to do lead. And then everyone is so bored about lead because they don't understand what the goal is or the vision. It's just all about the tool. But it's just like a hammer. You buy a hammer, you can use it well or you can use it poorly. It, it's about knowing what house you're going to build with that hammer. Then people are going to get excited about it. If you don't do this exercise, your poor project manager isn't going to have a budget to figure out how they're going to set up their project. And the design team doesn't have clear direction on where they're going to go with sustainability and what value you're putting in it. So what a lot of people do today where sustainability fails is where no value is put in the picture. At least put something, put something there, and then find out how much you're willing to invest of that value to, to do something. So the most valuable things in life are hard to quantify. This doesn't mean that you should avoid them. And uh, thank you for your attention today. Thank you for tuning into What's Next. Have an idea or point of view? Want to record a podcast of your own? Visit cornetglobal.org slash podcast.